0: The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com. For more information, you can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 44 of the murder in my family. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for The Murder My Family Podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash Family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate and help keep the show growing and improving. Before we get started with this episode, I'd like to tell you about a big event coming up this fall that I'm really excited about. It's called the American Crime Festival, or Crime Fest, and it's taking place right here in South Jersey, where I'm from. The American Crime Festival will be held in Wildwood, New Jersey, this November 8th through 10th, American Crime Fest will include star-studded presentations and compelling panels from the world of true crime, like Aphrodite Jones going toe-to-toe with Larry Pollard to debate the Al theory from Netflix's The Staircase. Go behind the scenes with your favorite podcasters, like myself and lots of other great hosts. Listen to experts discuss evidence and their theories on notable cases. Be sure to visit AmericanCrimeFest.com for more information. Stay tuned as personalities, presenters, and topics continue to be added. Don't miss this opportunity to meet and mingle with some of your favorite people from the world of true crime. You can learn more about and discuss your favorite investigations with your favorite podcasters, true crime TV personalities, and other citizen detectives at the beautiful Jersey Shore. I hope you'll come out and hang out with us. It should be a lot of fun. Thank you, and now on with the show. A successful career, a supportive spouse, a home in a good neighborhood, all goals that many of us try to reach. But sometimes, reaching those goals and having all of that isn't enough to overcome the darkness that exists in some of us. We're all human, and sometimes a bad decision or a moment of weakness can lead to a slippery slope, resulting in trouble and even murder. Alan Canny found himself in such a position, and unfortunately for him, it cost him his life. In July of 1985, 51-year-old Dr. W. Allen Canty seemed to have the world at his feet. He was a successful psychologist in the upscale area of Grosse Point, Michigan. Allen made quite a name for himself in that area, notably for being involved in the hypnotizing of potential witnesses in the infamous search for missing union boss Jimmy Hoffa. But Allen felt that he had big shoes to fill. His father, Allen Canty Sr., was an executive for a large Detroit area psychiatric clinic. Alan Kenney Jr. lived in a beautiful and well-maintained Tudor-style home in the Gross Point area alongside his young wife, Jan. Although Alan was several years older than Jan, the pair had a lot in common. Jan herself was driven to excel in her academic studies and profession. But as their years together went by, Jan noticed subtle differences in her husband. At times, Alan seemed distant. He seemed to have something going on or was always preoccupied. He was gone from home frequently, but Alan blamed work for his absence and changes in his mood. But by the time the couple had been married for almost a decade, things had changed considerably. Alan seemed to be almost totally withdrawn. As Jan looked around at her home, things just didn't seem to always make sense. While beautiful, their home was sparsely furnished, which appeared to be odd since their income would seem to be able to support comfortably furnishing the home. It was little things like that which seemed to catch her attention. What Jan didn't know was that Alan had been wrestling with demons. Demons which manifested themselves in the form of an illicit relationship between Alan and a 20-year-old sex worker named Don Spence. The secret relationship between Alan and Don went on for two years. During that time, Alan spent tens of thousands of dollars on Don and bought her lots of gifts, going as far as buying her a car, and helping her move from an apartment to a small house, even using his credit card to furnish it. Alan seemed to enjoy taking care of Don. It wasn't strictly sex he was interested in. Along the way, Alan hid the relationship well from his wife, but he was digging himself deeper into debt and into trouble. Unfortunately, it wasn't just Don Spends that Alan Canny was connected to, because her boyfriend and pimp, known on the streets as Lucky Johnny, was also part of the equation. Lucky, A.K.A. John Crawl Fry, as many pimps do, controlled Don any way he could. In her case, she had a drug problem that made her easy to manipulate. Fry easily controlled her, forcing Don to take advantage of Alan Canny in an effort to get every last penny that they could get from him. By July 1985, Alan Canny had had enough. Perhaps shame or guilt started weighing on him or the reality set in for him that he was in over his head financially, or in too deep with dangerous people. Whatever the reason, on Saturday, July 13th, Alan went to confront Don and Lucky, telling the pair that it was over. He wasn't going to give them another penny, and he wanted to cut all ties with them. The gravy train was over. But Lucky Fry wasn't ready to accept that, and without warning, he beat Alan Candy to death with a baseball bat. Afterwards, He and Don used a kitchen knife to dismember Alan's body. They disposed of the remains in several spots throughout northern Michigan. That night, Alan Canney didn't come home. Jan had last spoken with her husband at 3 p.m. that day. Alan was nowhere to be found, and there was no sign of his car, a Buick Regal. It wasn't until three days later that the burned-out remains of Alan's car were discovered in a vacant Detroit-area lot. On the weekend of Saturday, July 20th and Sunday, July 21st, A week after Alan Canney Jr. vanished, some of his discarded remains were found in different locations, between 25 and 250 miles from Detroit. Police had the unpleasant task of revealing to Alan's wife, Jan, that her husband was indeed dead, something they already suspected. Don and Lucky were no criminal masterminds, and it didn't take long at all for police to figure out that they were responsible for Alan's death. They were soon tracked down and arrested. Lucky Fry was charged with murder and mutilation of a body. Don Spins was charged with mutilation of a body and being an accessory to murder. Later at trial, Fry would be convicted of Alan Canny's murder and sentenced to life in prison. He died in prison in 1995. Don Spins wound up getting probation for her part in the crime. Reportedly, she managed to turn things around and get off drugs and has moved on with her life. Alan Canney wasn't a perfect person. Like any of us, he was human. He made mistakes. But just because he wasn't perfect didn't mean he deserved what happened to him. And his shocking and brutal murder should be a reminder that under the right circumstances, any person could find themselves in serious trouble. Following Alan's murder, his widow Jan was left to pick up the pieces and come to terms with the fact that the life she had with her husband wasn't entirely real. But it wasn't easy for her because the shocking details behind Alan's murder made for big news in their area. Jan found herself constantly talking about the case or being approached by people that didn't want to forget it. She, on the other hand, wanted to move on from the painful story and go on with her life. Eventually, Jan felt she had no other choice but to move away from the area, going as far as changing her name in an effort to start her life over. Over the last three decades, Jan was able to go on and build a new life and career. At some point, she was finally able to discuss that painful chapter in her past, and she joined me to discuss Alan's case and the aftermath. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Jan, and thanks for joining us today to discuss your late husband, Alan's case, with us. Thank you for having me. So I read and listened to a bunch uh, about this case, and and what I took away from it was it's a tragic and and powerful story with a a lot of really hard details to to push through. But so much of this case seems like it was so tough on you that you went as far as moving away and changing your name. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Can, Can you tell us a little bit about what made you at do that what made you come to that decision that that was something you needed to do
1: the primary reason was the media was just not going to let me have any peace and so i decided if I, the only way to get back in control of my life was to leave the my hometown which is what i did
0: and how far did you go
1: i went from the uh, detroit area to the midwest and then out to the um, pacific northwest
0: And did you feel that you had to reinvent yourself?
1: Yes, I did, definitely. And it was easier back then for the internet to do that.
0: And did that help you? Did you feel like you did get away from from it for the most part?
1: Definitely, I did. I mean, it was a mixed blessing in a way because it did allow me to do that at the same time. You know, I missed my friends. I missed everything I had become familiar with growing up in Detroit. Uh, So it wasn't... It wasn't perfect, but it was probably the best thing I did.
0: And before we get too far ahead, let us start at the beginning if we could. Um I know that you've talked before about when you first met Alan and there was a considerable age difference and the like. Um he was a well established and respected psychologist in, in Gross Point, is that correct?
1: That's correct. Yeah.
0: And that's a, a pretty nice area, a nice part of that of the state. Yes, it is. What sort of uh, courtship was it for you was it like a quick a sudden romance was it something that you um once you met did you feel that there was going to be some kind of connection there
1: well actually it was quite gradual because initially i met him by working for him and and i got to know him over a period of about a year and we just started going out to lunch and then we started going out to dinner so it was kind of a gradual evolution and the age difference was of course a factor that made me kind of put everything on pause for a while, but he was so supportive of my aspirations, and, you know, he was well-established, and he was a gentleman, et cetera, so eventually, you know, we ended up getting, actually, I proposed to him, as well. and uh, we ended up getting married, I think it was
0: about two years after we met. And, and how old were you uh, both when you first met?
1: Well, I was about 28, and he would have been 18 years older.
0: Say so he was in his uh, upper mid to upper forties, mm-hmm. and and what kind of person was Alan? Can you tell us a little bit about him? What he was like?
1: Well, that's a complicated question because he turned out to be quite different than everybody thought he was. But how he came off, when I knew him, was that he was quite polite and he was a very hard worker. He was bashful. He was reliable. You could set your watch by him. As I said, he was very supportive of my my goals. He was almost never critical of me. And uh, he was very respectful of me and other people. At least these are the thoughts I had of him during our courtship as well as through most of our marriage.
0: And how long were you married before he went missing?
1: We were married a little over 10 years.
0: You mentioned that you found out there were two sides of him. Did that side always exist as far as you know or was it a gradual As far as I know.
1: No. As far as I know it always existed. Of course I didn't know that at the time, but after I after he died I learned quite a bit about him. I learned a great deal from a couple of people he went to high school with who I didn't know that well and they put some of the pieces of the puzzle together for me and it, it, it clearly became something that was, his His other side was something that was even evident as early as high school.
0: Wow. And, and can you share some of those things that you heard?
1: That he was always driven to, uh, he was always intrigued by the street life and what goes with it. He was uh, very skilled at lying. He was quite insecure despite how he appeared. And that he had never been faithful to anyone that he had been involved with.
0: Wow. And that's gotta be looking back, once you found that information out, that's gotta be quite an eye opening experience.
1: Oh, definitely. You really it's it's an awful thing to feel duped and worse yet, in the under the microscope of the public
0: eye. And I think some people listening may say, well, there's no way I could live with somebody for ten years and not know they were they had some secret double life, and I don't think anybody can really know that unless they're in that situation. but looking back, was there any kind of clues or any kind of leads that you might have missed that that made you think something might have been uh, amiss?
1: nothing nothing glaring uh, he it, the last couple of years of our marriage, he became more withdrawn and more defensive is when I met him, I was a high school graduate and he had a PhD and he was encouraging of me to go to college. You get my bachelor's, you get my master's. But when I got into my PhD program, he started getting a little testy. I, I didn't ring any alarm bells. He, he blamed it on the finances of, of the education, which I know is expensive. But it kind of went, I think when I'm surpassed his education, and I went for a postdoctoral fellowship, that's when he decompensated. And the first big alarm was he had a psychiatric decompensation and ended up in the hospital for six weeks. But I didn't know the reason why. And and he he was there for quite some time with all these experts and nobody figured out really what was behind it. But looking back, clearly the two worlds that he had been living in collided, and he couldn't hold it together any longer. So that was a big alarm, but I didn't make sense of it at the time.
0: And what what do you think, uh, you know, I'm asking you to play, uh, you know, an analyst, I guess, for, for him. Do you know what was at the root of maybe some of that stuff that, that drove him?
1: Yeah, I would say that in the essence of it, what it really boiled down to was he was always expected to do well but it was never good enough and i think there was a part of him that always felt like he was a phony regardless of how he appeared on the outside and he had to be this he had to like be the authority and be kind of in control and as i got further along and i became more of his peer in the professional arena and i know he he was very defensive when we talked about psychology and I would question his theories and because there's a lot of new emerging research in the field of neurobiology and psychopharmacology that he was not t- keeping up on and we just had it, he it was all, kind of strange because it's not a thing most couples argue about <laughs> and that was probably our most that and and one other thing were our most sensitive discussions the other being he never stopped working he was never home at the end and he didn't he he couldn't all he couldn't keep through with a promise of I'll be home and I'll I'll be there for dinner and I'll be gone all the weekend. No, it was always I gotta get to work, I gotta get to work. And I think he was always trying to prove himself and when I surpassed him educationally, he decompensated.
0: So that was yeah. in, a,
1: in a nutshell.
0: Wow. So that was was a signal that something at that point changed.
1: hmm Definitely.
0: And eventually he met or became involved with a sex worker, and he became, I guess, enamored with her, might be a, f- a fair word, and yes. led to uh, some, I guess, a hidden life or another side of him that you weren't aware of. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that, what you know about that?
1: Well, I was away. I was recovering from mono, and I was in Phoenix at my parents' house for a couple weeks and it was his birthday, and, and his mom had given him some money for his birthday. Interestingly enough, when she handed it to him, one of her comments was, and he was in like in his 50th birthday, I think it was something like that. Uh, he said, it, when she handed him the money, she said, you're a big boy now, which I think is an interesting comment to me. Anyway, he went down to the Cass Quarter, and he he bought the services of this prostitute, and... In my absence, he was there every day. And he became chums with her pimp and started supplying them money and hand over fist. And what I find the most interesting is that according to two or three different sources that I had after the fact, sex really was not a major feature of the relationship with Don. It was more sitting around, reading books, talking about cases that didn't exist and being the authority, being the big dad, he'd go over there with groceries and sit around and pontificate about cases about the history of Detroit, give them more money, pay their rent, bought the cars. And he was like buying an audience is how I see it. And it spun out of control. Of course, they're using it on drugs and either he ran out of money or he just decided Enough is enough after eighteen months, and he shut off the money supply, and that's when he got murdered.
0: So this this wasn't like a one weekend thing. This was going on for months. Oh no,
1: almost daily for about eighteen months.
0: Wow, and and did it during that eighteen months? Did he start anything change at that point that you noticed him? You know, you mentioned him going to work a lot. Is it possible that he was sometimes going this here instead?
1: Uh, he was uh, gone a lot, and he was claiming to be at work, but of course he was over at their residence, which was in the slums. It was a god-awful place when I saw the pictures of it. The only changes I saw on my end was he became more interested in his appearance. That was about it.
0: Wow.
1: And then two weeks before he died, we started getting hang-up calls, and he, and I was scared, and he was annoyed, and then he started reaching for the phone more and more, and i it got to the end where if the phone rang. He sprung for it, and I didn't know who it was on the other end. I just knew it was the same person.
0: And so you think it was possibly connected to the, to those people? Maybe they were calling to check on him or see where he was at, that kind of thing?
1: You mean at the time?
0: Yeah, or, or even looking back now.
1: Um, at the time, I, did, I just thought it was some drunk dial- guy doing drunk dials who couldn't figure out how to use a phone. Looking back, I know for a fact it was them. They were putting the heat on them to give more money up. Because they were like, trying to think, send the message, we can get to you, we know where you live, You know we're going to reach in, so you better come through with the money.
0: And, and do you know over that 18-month period how much money he spent with them?
1: Yes. The police told me that in that 18- month period. This is $1985. It was about $150,000 cash, which is over $350,000
0: today. Wow. That's that, that number. You you hear it and, and just think that it's uh, something that, that can't happen. And then here, it's, it definitely can because it happened to, to you. Did, did you notice any kind of financial burden or any money missing or anything along those lines during that time?
1: Well, he had always taken. You have to understand the evolution of our relationship was that when I was in college, I was gone a lot. I was driving back and forth, uh, I was not home a lot, and he always took care of the bills. We never had anybody call the house. I never saw any late notices. But as I got out of my master's program and was in my doctoral program, and especially when I was in my postdoctoral program, I kept hounding him to say, "Let's look at our finances." And see if you need to be working these many hours because you're never home. And if you do need to work these many hours, if our bills are like that, I'm going to work harder so you can be home. But I don't know where we stand. And he always had an excuse to not turn it over to me. So I didn't know that any money was missing. I just knew he was very defensive about it. And I finally said, Look, we need to do some things around the house. We've lived here 10 years, we don't even have it furnished half of it. It's this big old house which I didn't even want. And half of it was an even had old carpet. And he did. He just he just sprung into action and, and redecorated. And uh, so again, I thought, well, he he's able to handle it, I guess, because, you know, we got the painting done, we got the carpet again, we got furniture bought. And, and so, no, I didn't realize then that he was going into debt. And at the very end, after he was killed, he was... Uh, over his head we were. he left me with uh, $30,000 in bills unpaid taxes uh, it was a nightmare and I was feeling homelessness at that
0: point take us back to July 13th 1985 Alan went missing that day how did that day unfold for you and when did you know something was wrong
1: yeah I remember this like it was yesterday that day <clears throat> was a Saturday and I had been wanting, uh, he called me at three o'clock in the afternoon and said he, was, he wanted hamburgers for dinner. And I said, fine. So I got it out to get ready. And I had really been looking forward to seeing the show Live eight, which is a three-hour special on TV that night. <clears throat> and he's very punctual. So I knew I wasn't able to watch all of it. But I, I sat down and, and as I was starting to watch Live eight, there was a terrible, terrible storm brewing outside and I call him and I said, you know, you should really get home because there could be trees, there was some high winds and hail and lightning and that kind of a storm. And, and he characteristically blew it off. He was never one to see a lar- be alarmed I think. And so uh, I turned on Live Aid and I was absorbed in it so much so that when I first took a look, it was 10 o'clock, I mean, it was over. And I was like, where is he? Because I had lost track of time by watching this show. And the storm was horrific at that point. So I called his answering service. We had no cell phones in those days. I called his answering service. There was They had no knowledge of what happened. And I called all his friends. They didn't know. They hadn't heard from him. Uh, I called the guard station down in the building. He had, uh, they, they, they said his car was not there. And I'm like, well, they get bogged down in the rain or, you know, where is he? So I I just took cat naps the whole night with the phone on my lap, waiting for him to come home and listening to the storm outside. And uh, about, I think, one in the morning, I called my next door neighbor, which I never do. I never call my neighbors at one in the morning. But I said, could you possibly drive me down to the Detroit Fisher building I said, it's not a great area, and I didn't want to be down there in that storm at 1 in the morning because I told him Al was missing, and he said, sure. So he took me down there, and everything was in place in his office. He was gone, and the guards showed me the, uh, the sign-out sheet that they have, and he had signed out at 6.30 in the in the evening, so he should have been home by 7 o'clock. And this is 1 in the morning. At that point, I didn't know what to think. So the next morning, I got up and went down to the Detroit substation to report him missing, but they wouldn't take my report because they said it hadn't been 24 hours yet. So it was a week of waiting and wondering and uh, just trying to piece together what was going on, and I wasn't getting anywhere.
0: What did the police say once they finally did talk to you about the case? What was their uh, take on it?
1: They uh, called me down to, they had actually Detective Landeros called me and asked me to meet her and Inspector Gil Hill in the homicide section of the Detroit Police Department. Well, once that word came up, I thought this is taking a turn for its worse. So uh, they met me down there, and it was a pretty short time. I mean, 20 minutes is all it took. But he started showing me um, documents about, uh, they showed me a, a photograph of a burned out car, for example, that was his car. And they asked me if I recognized it. And I said, yes. And then they showed me, um, Ashley, Al- Al- I think Ashley Albright is the name of this cartoon that they had in the Detroit free press. And there was one that I liked and I, he, I ripped it out of the paper and gave it to him. And he had it laminated and it said, my favorite place in the world is anywhere with you. And he had it in his wallet. And they pulled that out and it was burned around the edges. And they said, do you recognize this? And I said, yes. And I told them what it was and I kept saying, where is he? And uh, they said, well, we think he's been murdered but we don't have his body yet. And they were pretty blunt. They also said he'd been hanging down on Cass Avenue in the presence of John Fry and Don Spence, names I hadn't heard of. And that they had talked to several people in the area. They'd seen his car there frequently. And so I, I was I was not running on much sleep, so none of us was making much sense to me. I'm like, This can't be, but I, I was searching for answers. I, I just it just wasn't making sense to me at the time.
0: So when they gave you those names, that was the first you had ever heard of them.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And and once they said flat out we think he was murdered, I mean, there's that's not sugar coated at all. How did you handle that information and process that
1: i was just speechless I, I just sat there like like a sledgehammer hit me at my parents were with me and i just kept saying this can't be and they said well we don't have a body yet but when we do and we think we will we're going to have to call you back have you come back down what i didn't know behind the scenes is that at that interview. They already had a snitch that told them that they could lead them to the body, and it was going to be just a matter of hours till they were going to bring me back, which is what happened. And so they called me, and I I can't remember now if I went down there or they had a car come for me. I I don't remember that part, but I remember I had to go to the morgue, and my husband had been killed by a baseball bat, and he had also been dismembered, and buried in a shallow bog um, at the University of Michigan Biologic Station, which is very uh, remote. And they had uh, flown up there, got the remnants of what they could, and brought them to the Wayne County Morgue. And they had me come back down in the morning and identify the parts.
0: Wow. I can't even, I can't even imagine what that was like for you. It was pretty horrific. I think the only thing that saved me, well, two things. One is my dad was with me,
1: as well as Detective Landeros, who prepared me for what I was going to see. And then the second thing is I was so exhausted at that point that I was almost numb. I felt like a marionette in their hands. And you get to a point where not knowing is is the worst thing. That's why people who have cold cases, I don't know how they do with it. I I just, I mean, a few days was enough for me. I can't imagine Debra knowing.
0: I take it that they they were arrested very quickly after his remains were found. Yes.
1: Yes. Because the informant knew where they were. And this is a strange thing. There's a lot of strange things about this. But John Fry, for whatever reason, called his aunt, who he intended on killing because she knew too much. She had told her everything he had done. And he called her and warned her he was on his way to get her. So, of course, she fled. She went out the back of her house in her slippers, went to her sister's house nearby, called her neighbor who was a Detroit detective. This was like at midnight. And uh, they were waiting for him when he showed up. It was pretty, at the end, it was pretty easy for them. I mean, he called for backup, and they, they, they watched him approach her front door with a baseball bat. And they confronted him and said, Why are you walking around? in a residential area in the middle of the night with a baseball bat. He didn't have any explanation and they asked to see his identification and he pulled out one, but it wasn't the right one. Uh, But they took him in for questioning and they took Don with him as well and separated them. And uh, by that time, they had all the evidence they needed. They had sworn statements of the neighbors, they had the, the body parts, they had the torch car, and then Don finally turned on him, too, and they had everything they needed at that point. And when it went to trial, he admitted he did it. He never claimed he was innocent. He just he just said, I, I needed drugs. That was his excuse.
0: And was Don uh, as forthcoming as, as he was for her involvement? Yes.
1: Yes, she was.
0: And was there any sign of remorse or any kind of, uh, you know, no. regret? No.
1: In fact, in fact, um, I I read that in a news report later that one of Don's friends during the trial, it was either during the trial or the arraignment period, came to visit Don, and she was laughing about it. And uh, I saw an interview that, Don, that John Freid. Many, many years later, it was a broadcast on television and when he was in, uh, he was still in, pet, in the Marquette Penitentiary. And it was his interview about what he had done, and he was laughing, too. Like, the chump had come and was his boy. So no, neither of them expressed any remorse.
0: Wow. So they were both found guilty of, of different crimes, I take it. Um, what, was, what were they found guilty of, and what was their sentence?
1: Uh-oh. Well, they had been found guilty, John, they, they had separate trials. John was found guilty of uh, first-degree murder. Uh, he had planned it because he had bragged to several people he was going to do it, and the baseball that was ready. Um, she was found guilty of an old statute, statute in Michigan uh, to deter grave robbers and so on, of, of mutilation of a dead body and transportation of body parts, uh, those aren't the exact words, but she was never found guilty of, or she was never charged with first degree murder, but it was the aftermath that she was charged with. and She uh, was found guilty as well. Then the judge, Judge Sapala, called me and asked me what he wanted for the sentences to be. And I asked him for an hour to think about it. And I called him back and I said that my feeling was that Jod was a lot older. He had a long criminal history. And he had planned it. He was the one that did it. And I wanted him to get the maximum, whatever that could be. And uh, as far as she went, I said she was a lot younger. And she was, even though she was involved, she didn't actually do the killing. And I felt that there might be some more chance that she could come out of this. And he, he was a lost cause. So I wanted her to have a shorter prison sentence and rehabilitation, community service, and probation. And that's pretty much what they both got.
0: So they, they essentially went with your uh, recommendation to some extent.
1: Yes, they did. But John ended up dying in Marquette Penitentiary oh, not long after he'd been there, maybe three, or, three to five years later, of hep C.
0: Okay. And, and how about Dawn? How, how did she fare in prison?
1: She did well. She went to uh, drug rehab. Uh, she, she was out of confinement before I even sold my house. I, I thought she'd be held longer than that, but she was out in a matter of maybe 10 months. That's all she served. The strange thing was, she was never charged with a lot of things that they could have charged her with, like prostitution, um, stolen cars, drug abuse, and all that. that. They never brought any of that into the into the situation. So she got off pretty easy and it caused a lot of uh, back and forth in the media. Again, a lot of people voicing their opinion about, about it were outraged, but she ended up doing okay. She went back to college and got off drugs and I understand she got married and is doing well.
0: well. That's, and that's what you sort of wanted. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. I mean, my viewpoint
0: was a practical
1: one. I mean, Detroit, Wayne County is broke and they did not need to have two people, two more people that they needed to support for the rest of their life through taxpayer dollars. And it didn't serve any purpose to do that. I didn't want that. And I don't think it was even, she was eligible for a lengthy parole, or lengthy prison sentence. But yeah, I mean, I didn't, I would never want to be friends with her, but I didn't wish her ill will at the end. I was like, just, Get it together and get back because she was so young uh, compared to John Fry. She just had made some pretty bad decisions, and she came from a rough childhood herself. So anyway, uh, they ended up in very different places, and uh, of course, I had no further contact with them ever since I went to court that day.
0: Well, I take it that in this area, this this murder, Alan's murder, was was a big shock to people in that community.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> They climbed all over it. I mean, it had all the makings of a movie. You know, you get somebody who's from a well-to-do family, who's well-educated, lives in Girls Point, and he's involved with these seedy people, giving his money away, buying them cars, and he gets murdered by them. It's big news, and they would not let it go. They would not let it go. And that became as much of a trauma to me as the murder itself over the time, because it would not let it go and I got tired of it it it, it hounded me I mean like Chris this is just one example and I had to close up his office and I was selling things just to make some money I everything every dime I could because of the financial mess I was in and i went into his closet in his office and he had a bunch of telephones this was back in the day when you rented them from michigan bell and it's all different now but you you paid a monthly fee for having a phone in your house and you paid that rent on it to michigan bell and he had a whole big bag of phones that he's paying he's getting charged with so i took those into michigan bell to turn them in with the receipt to say this is who they were, and I don't want them anymore. And they're like, oh, you're his wife. And they yelled it out, and a couple other people working behind the, the desk came over. It was like everywhere I went, I felt like I was on display, and it was just unrelenting. And I was so tired of the attention and the negative attention, especially when they would say, well, how couldn't you not know? I got so tired of that question. But I thought, you know, I guess the only way you're going to know is if you're in my shoes, and you won't be in my shoes. So I, I stopped trying to explain it, and I just left. It's something and, I would not, I would not have understood had it not happened to me.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people, you know, everybody thinks they know the person they're married to, and um,
1: absolutely.
0: But there's always, you know, do you ever know every detail about someone? And that I think your this case with you is is proof of that. That's very true. I
1: mean, sometimes we know shockingly little about the people that we think we know best.
0: Yeah. Well, you you went from dealing with all that and said enough is enough, and, and you left and, and started this new life for yourself, uh, reinvented yourself. Um, and along the way, you know, you've you've come a long ways, and, and you have a lot to show for what you did with your time. You're an author, a psychologist, a speaker, a survivor. Um, tell us about some of the stuff that you've done and, and how it's helped you to heal over over these last three decades.
1: Yeah, well, the first thing, as I mentioned, is I left. And then I, I started. I ha- I've always had an interest in, in photography. And I was teaching a class in cross-cultural psychotherapy, and I thought, you know, it would really add a lot to this class if I could travel and do photography and bring it back into these pictures and show people what I'm talking about. So I started going to really remote places around the globe and that was very healing because I'll tell you what, it gives you a whole new perspective on problems. When you meet with people, you get to know people because I would stay in these places for a bit and you get to know these people and you, they don't even have clean water they don't have electricity they don't they will never see a physician in their entire life their life expectancy is short they have infant mortality it goes the diseases that you see and you're thinking you think you've got problems I mean I have rights in the United States as a citizen and I have electricity I have running water I have an education I have my health it isn't all bad and it really, really put it in perspective that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have it a lot worse than I did. So that was one of the things. And then I decided in my uh, late 30s, I, I decided to adopt a couple of kids. It, I, I decided to adopt, I wanted to adopt a child. And with the, and after hearing my history, the adoption agency wanted me to adopt two sisters Whose mother was murdered because they felt I would be able to help them with that as they got older, and so I became a mom, and that was a healing experience because, you know, I I used it to an, to my advantage and and advantaged them through that, and uh, that was a very positive thing in my life, um, and I remarried, and he adopted my children. Of course, that was a very positive thing as well. So, and now I'm a grandma. <laughs> so uh, life goes on, and um, I, I just never stopped believing that I could pull it off, that I could get out of it. I never questioned that, and I always, you know, reminded myself it could be so much worse than what it was. That are there are people that have it worse, um, and I got physically fit, and I started doing triathlons. That was very healing process as well, and then I don't know, got you know threw myself into my career. Um, started it took me thirty odd years, but I finally started talking about it, and that of course was helpful too. Now hopefully not just to me, but to the people I was talking to, and that's why I'm doing this interview with you today. <laughs>
0: And and what are some of the things when you talk to someone? I know just recently you, you gave a speech to several hundred people. What what kind of things do you address and and open up about?
1: I try to talk about things like where resilience comes from. I I it depends on the audience, of course. I'll talk about that. I talk when I've talked to coroners. I talked about the things that the coroners and the detectives did right to handle me through that difficult morgue procedure. Um, when I've talked to uh, more general groups, I will speak about the process of grief and how very complicated and, and unique it is to everybody. Uh, and it's what it's a part of the process. I, for example, I had a, uh, a friend of mine whose son was killed in the Pulse nightclub in uh, uh, Orlando, Florida, in 2016, and. I talk about his situation and and how I understand where people are that, you know, if, if I'm reading about somebody who says, well, it's only been two years, why am I not better? Well, the grief process takes a lot longer than that. Some people never emerge from it. So I'll talk about that. There was another show where I talked, it was supposed to be on grief, but I talked about conflicted grief because that's not something we ever hear about. The idea that there's relief mixed in with the grief. We never talk about that. It's always sad and lonely, and I miss the person. Well, you know, not always. You, I look back, and I, I, there was a lot of relief when I when I realized the degree of duplicity and how he put my own life in, at risk through his decisions. There was relief when I found out he's gone and he's never coming back. And that's not. And I think that is unfortunate that we don't talk about conflicted grief because there's a lot of people out there who have it. For example, if you've got a child who's an adult who does drugs and who steals from you and threatens you and hurts your dog and brings havoc into your life and won't come stay off of drugs, and you've got bills from them for maybe going through rehab or legal bills, and they ended up overdosing, there's gonna be some relief in it when it's finally over, mixed with genuine grief of how sad it is. It's not unique to a murder situation. And I I, th- I wish we would talk more about that. Um, so uh, the process of healing can take a lot of different forms, and uh, it certainly takes a lot of time, too.
0: So it sounds like you've really um, parlayed the pain and, and the, the stuff you've had to go through for the last three decades into something positive to help other people.
1: That was my goal. Uh, you know, when I was going through it, I thought, you know, this is not going to, undo me I'm not going to let that happen because that is not an alternative that is not going to happen to me I am not going to succumb and just become another victim to this ugly scenario I won't do it and I'm gonna take it and somehow make something good out of it I was determined to do that from the beginning and it was like a challenge like oh you think you you can beat me you're not you watch and I always had that in the back of my mind and I to this day, that's how strongly I feel about it. One of the, um, the comments that a friend of mine made at the time, uh, shortly after the funeral, and that was a whole other mess, but um, after the funeral was over and he called me, and he was one of my friends in the postdoctoral program, and he didn't know what to say. Nobody knew what to say, really. It's a pretty ugly such situation. And, he, and he, he was very thoughtful and very kind, and he said, well, you know, Life is meant to be an adventure. I never forgot that. It made a huge impact on me, that little sentence. And I kept thinking, yes, it is an adventure. And I I don't know where this is taking me, but I'm going to make it something positive. And I just was determined to do that from day one. But I knew that I first had to get myself together. That's why I did the triathlons. That's why I traveled. That's before I would attempt to begin to talk out about it to other people. Um, I was not about to do that when it was, I was still raw and I still hadn't figured anything out. And it, it took me a long, long time. What eventually happened to tip the scale the other way was there was a coworker of ours missing. Uh, and she was later found, but she was missing for about two weeks and people were talking about it, of course. And they come up to me and they go, could you imagine what that would be like for her family? They have somebody missing? And I said, oh, no, I can't imagine that. You know, typical stuff that would come out of my mouth. And I'm thinking, why am I lying about this? Yes, I understand that. That was one thing. And then the other thing was I had, over the years, collected a series of books written by people who had been through various kinds of adversity and come out of it well. And I, I always used them as a source of inspiration, a whole different variety of situations, like some were those Chilean miners that were buried for 69 days after the cave-in of their mining shaft. Another was a one a woman called Hostage, and it was a house invasion where they put dynamite on her daughter's back, and she was supposed she was a, a manager of a bank, and they demanded that she go open the safe uh, in the morning, and they were going to rob the bank. If and if she didn't, her daughter would get blown up. And there was all these different kinds of scenarios that you know you just going along your normal day and boom, you find yourself in a life and death situation where everything's upside down. And I used those to inspire me because I thought, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. Wow. And I did. And I, I still; those are still my favorite book collection. I still have them in a prominent place in my house. Which is why I wanted to write a book myself, because I thought, to my knowledge, and I don't know if this is true, but to the best of my knowledge, there is no book out there written by a psychologist who is a homicide survivor and writes about their experience as a homicide survivor, which is what I, I did. It's not published yet. It's a manuscript. I'm trying to get it published. The book is um, called, uh, well, I've changed the title a couple of times, but a uh, um It was originally called Till Death We Did Part, and I changed it to A Life Divided, A Life Divided. And uh, what I talk about, of course, in the beginning is what happened, but I also go into quite a bit of detail psychologically about the profile of everybody involved, including myself, as well as some chapters at the end that deal more with the period of recovery and grief for other homicide survivors. And I'm not saying I know the way for everybody. Everybody's unique, but I can I can definitely point to what made me feel better and what got me through. And I wanted to make it useful to people that were in my shoes. But I've got two people looking at it now, but I've been at this process for a while now. And I don't know, holding my breath. It's very, very difficult to break into uh, a traditional publishing as an unknown author because of the expense involved—it's quite expensive and it's very intense. That you have to write a proposal. Mine turned out to be sixty-eight pages. You have to um, uh, find literary agents. It's—it's it's really not a very slick process. And uh, so, but but that's my goal. I still want to try to do traditional publishing. I hired a, liter- a literary agent to help. I mean, a literary agent consultant, who was a former literary agent himself, to try to help me get it in the right hands.
0: Well, I hope I hope you end up publishing because that sounds like a, a very interesting story that people would read and that would help a lot of people.
1: I hope so. I have a following on Facebook. They're following it and making comments, and they like it. So. That gives me encouragement, too.
0: Oh, that's that's great. Do you have a, a public page uh, on social media or any place where anybody, p- anybody can follow you? Yes. Yes.
1: It's simply It's all www.jancantyphd.com.
0: And I hope people will go check it out and, and learn more about your, your story and how you survived. And it's just fascinating and, and powerful to hear somebody come through all that, come out on the other side. Thank you. Yes, I hope others can do that as well. It takes
1: time uh, and it, it takes support of other people. Nobody does this by themselves, but it's possible. I know that it's possible. Um, I, that that's that book collection I have. You know, I, I have example after example of people that were thrown curves in their life and come out of it. And uh, it, you know, society doesn't make it easy. You know, when they won't let let you talk about conflicted grief and when they stop being supportive, usually as you may know, you get this gush of support and then everybody goes back to their life and then it starts to really hit and then you have the anniversary actions and then you think you're the you're something wrong with you because you're just five years later and you're you're still grieving and that's why organizations for homicide survivors and podcasts like yours and so on are so important because if, if, if support isn't coming from out there in the culture, we can support one another. And that's so vital. And that's why I, I spoke recently to police investigators and CSI workers to remind them that this is why you got into this work, guys. It's not just a piece of a body you're looking at. There's a whole family behind it. They were startled to learn how many, that I'm, for every one homicide on average, there's about eight people that are immediately and deeply impacted by that murder. They didn't know that, and basic stuff. I, I just think it's important for coroners and and other homicide survivors and people to get on the same page about it because it's sadly not rare, and and people can help one another if, if through doing this rather than expect help to come from neighbors and people that really don't understand.
0: And that's that's important messages that when somebody is murdered you might solve that murder and and take one off the books, so to speak. But there's a family left in, in the wake that has to deal with everything that comes after.
1: Forever. It's like living a marathon.
0: Well, I, again, I know you've been through a lot, and I appreciate you sharing it with us and, and talking about it because I think people that might be in a similar situation can take some encouragement from what you've gone through and survived, and hopefully that helps them. I hope so, too. And I, uh, if there's even one person out there that benefits, I'm certainly
1: glad I took the time to do it.
0: Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. I'd also like to let you know that a great podcast that I listen to, called Pretend Radio, is also covering Alan Canney's case right now. If you'd like to hear about Alan Canney's case from other angles, be sure to check out my friend Javier's podcast, Pretend Radio, to hear his take on the case. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to invite you to listen to a preview of a true crime podcast that I think you'll really enjoy called Flat Rock. Be sure to give it a listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.
1: One time a detective says she never had a chance. What do he mean by that? What do they know that the public don't know? In 1969, Kathy Jones was brutally murdered on her way to a Nashville skating rink. The public wasn't told about one of the strongest suspects in her case, and I want to know
0: more. Join me for Flat Rock, a cold case podcast where I'll be taking a deep dive into Kathy's murder
1: and bringing you with me. Someone out there still alive today, someone knows something.